I, for those of you who know me, this is probably no surprise, but I, I have always studied and been interested in the intersection between the culture we live in and faith. And th- those things have always fascinated me. I'm, my theological roots are in John Calvin and Jurgen Moltmann and um, Karl Barth and Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger and Ron Howard and David Lynch. And so I've, I've, I've studied all these great theologians along with Kierkegaard and the others and, and tried to make some sense of them in the midst of our culture. And another person that's done a lot of that is a fellow named James Davison Hunter. James has got a brain about twice the size of this room and is quite an interesting fellow. And he's written some really important books. He works at University of Virginia and studies culture. He wrote a book called To Change the World. And it really sort of gobsmacked me. It got my attention totally. And I want to address it a little bit this morning because he observes our culture and a problem that exists within the church and in our culture where there are different people making claims to what's going on. Um, For instance, what he would say is that more conservative people fight secularism and secularism in the deepest sense of if you're if you're more conservative, you might say, I don't want to change anything culturally. Right. I I don't want to see any changes or or any we want to reinterpret, but keep keep what we're doing. And issues like prayer in school and teaching on evolution and social issues like abortion, sexual preference, those things become really hot potatoes in that community. Then in the more progressive community, we find these wonderful people that are always finding oppression to fight. And so the enemy, rather than secularism, is oppression for the more liberal. And basically what Hunter goes on to say in this very, very long book. So I had, a, I had to read a book about this. Well, OK, it was about this thick, but it's a really thick book to come to the conclusion that neither of those people are right. Um, you know, in other words, like the more you're conservative and think you're right, the wronger you're getting. The more progressive you are and thinking you're right, the more wrong you're getting. So whether you're right or left, you're getting more wrong if you think your side's the only one. And what James Davison Hunter says is that the liberals and conservatives all got it wrong, and they aren't even considering the right issues in the world today. So Hunter took and just said, what are, what are the real issues that we face in the year 2018? And what does Jesus' way, the kingdom of God, do to speak to the, the world that we live in today? Can Jesus' very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, can it teach us something that's different? Does it have another angle? And I would say, yes, it has another angle. It has a far superior angle. And I wonder what our culture making would look like if we were to indeed take seriously the idea that we're missing the mark with the way we tend to order our lives and bunch together with people who only think like us. Um, the issues that he sees in the world, by the way, Hunter, Davison Hunter, is intense and growing diversity. That America and Western culture, all civilization, has gone from being mosaics of people, put, or melting pots of people, to becoming one. You move to Norway, you become Norwegian. To, or, or Holland, you become Dutch, whatever. But you, you, you basically, in that situation, we have this growing diversity that's all over the place. So my, my grandma Roland's uh, parents brought, came over here when she was a baby girl from Norway. And uh, Norwegian people and many people in the world cannot pronounce the diphthong TH. And in most of the world, we didn't think fit to do this. People look at TH and just say T. So you go through the door instead of through the door, right? 
Well, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, cut a switch off the tree outside and told my, my grandma Edith and her sister Laura, if you talk like a dumb Norwegian, I'm going to switch you on the legs. Dumb Norwegians say, true the door. Americans say the way that you're going to say it. He couldn't even say it to correct her to say it. But if you say, if you say true the door like I say true the door, I'm going to beat you is basically the message. You will become an American and act like American and be American and, and you're going to melt away. And that includes right down to the conformity in how you speak. Well, we have an intense and growing diversity. That's not happening anymore. Many people that are coming here still have a strong connection to their, their home culture and to their home language. And English is one of the languages we speak in here in America, and it's the predominant language still, but it's one of many that are spoken if you, if you look around our, our culture and look at signs that are printed in multilingual fashion. So we've got this intense and growing diversity where being a melting pot doesn't work anymore. People are holding on to their individual identity, and people are spreading out all over the globe. All right? Then the second thing is this idea of a dissolution of meaning. Words and meanings are up for grabs, and different emotional, economic, and social landscapes create totally diverse meaning for just one single word. Think about the times in our culture that the word cool, right? So my grandmother would have said it's cool, that meant put your sweater on. My dad would have said that's cool, that's kind of hip. I might have said cool, that's not the word we use. And my kids might say, oh, that was cool, meaning cruel, right? It's like saying that was cold. And, and the word cool can mean a whole bunch of different things. And every group, it seems, gets to decide what those words mean and negotiate their meaning. So we have this dissolution of meaning where even words that had a common understanding are not so commonly understood anymore or may have multiple purposes. And then with the breakdown in, in community and the increasing diversity, you feel the tension and the polarization rise in culture. And what does that bring? Always an increase in violence. So the more cultures move the way ours is moving, the way our world is moving, the more violent they become. 50 international cities have a murder rate of over 30 persons for 100,000. And four of those cities um, are here in the United States, New Orleans, Baltimore, Chicago. Um, but around the world, do you realize 30 persons per 100,000? And in Honduras, it's more like 80 persons per 100,000 um, dying. That is like 80 would be, what is that? 16, 18, 20, over 20 times what the murder rate is in Seattle. So the world's becoming a much more violent place in many ways. So how do we address that? The, the increasing plurality, the lack of meaning, and the violent nature of a culture. In this next three weeks, we're going to look at this one text, three different times, three different angles. And I'm not even sure what the third angle is going to be on the 22nd, so please be here for that. You guys have never seen me depend on the Holy Spirit for a sermon, and I hope you never have to. Um, I depend on the Holy Spirit the week before so that you don't have to depend on him to hear something here. Um, but we'll see. I'm, I'm still thinking about what to do in week three because I'm going to see how the dialogue goes with us and, and decide where to take this. But I want to look at the Sermon on the Mount this morning through perhaps a new set of eyes, a set of eyes that says, could this be where we should focus our vision for what a good society looks like? Focus our vision for what community looks like. Not ought to look like, I don't want to guilt or shame anybody, but what it can look like at its very best is offered in this text at a far greater degree than any of our political polarizations can take us, right? The right's right, 
some of the time. The left is right some of the time. They're both wrong most of the time. I think Jesus is right more often. I think we may see here a blueprint for a world order that would perhaps usher in a world of peace and prosperity and understanding. Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And I'm going to use the uh, living, or not the living, but the message Bible when I read this. So you're going to hear me say blessings on. And does this say, go to the next slide, would you? Okay, so this blessed R is the, is the reading you're seeing there. I'm just doing blessings on because that's what Eugene Peterson did in his translation. It goes like this. Blessings on the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessings on those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessings on the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Blessings on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessings on the merciful, they'll be shown mercy. Blessings on the pure in heart, they'll see God. Blessings on the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessings on those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessings on you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things and evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who went before you. Lord, we thank you for your crystal clear word. I ask myself, Lord, how can I have been reading this for the last 47 years and so show so little progress? God, for all of us today, inspire us with a vision of, our, of your kingdom. Give us the heart and desire, the passion, to live your view of the world, not the views that we are marketed by the political and social outfits around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know what I love about this passage, first and foremost? Do you notice that Jesus brings <coughs> dignity to those who are often marginalized in our society? In the plurality of our culture, we have multiple people in multiple places with different gifts and talents and different views on the world. Jesus brings honor and dignity to those who are marginalized in our society. You know, I've been watching, I don't know if you guys have seen this the last week, I had the last time they had the, the Goodwill, or the, the Special Olympics in Seattle, I got to emcee the thing in the stadium, and I just loved doing it, and they didn't invite me back. So I don't know if I'm fired or too old, or they just thought of somebody else, but I didn't get to do it this year. But the news media in Seattle have, have dropped the Seahawks and Mariners for the largest part, and, and, and they're talking about these kids in the Special Olympics. And you're hearing about kids from all over, compete, all over the country competing in these events and excelling. And these are handicapped people that would have been marginalized and made fun of in their school. And now these people are the stars of the sports page. Isn't that cool? I think that's a beautiful vision for a good society, is one that finds the enablements of everyone and celebrates them. Okay, Jesus also turns soft or sometimes pejorative word states into positive and power words. I remember I had an uncle who, when I was a little kid, he was a scary uncle too. I, I had some terrifying moments with this man. But my uncle Hal would just go, big boys don't cry. You're a big boy. Stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about or something like that. You know? and, and it was, but it was always like, and here Jesus says, if you're weeping, 
bless you. You are going to be consoled. So Jesus doesn't mock the state of our life or anybody else's life. He, he invites everybody in. He's inclusive. You belong here. You have an identity here. And as the church, we have the ability to name people's identity and call out their identity. These kids in the Special Olympics aren't afterthoughts. They aren't outcasts. They aren't throwaways. They're precious people, and, and they're doing stuff that's capturing our attention and putting big smiles on all of us. I don't know if maybe I'm just too much of a sports junkie, but this just, this just blesses my heart watching what's going on here. And I'm thinking that is a great way to celebrate what in some other places might be mocked. Brokenhearted people get comforted with special attention. Merciful persons get elevated, not lost or not considered wimpy. You know, in, in the neighborhood I grew up in, if you did something nice or made a concession to something, you were a wimp. You were backing down. You were you were backing off. I was raised in this self-important, self-motivated neighborhood where you reached out and got what was yours, and if somebody else didn't get theirs, that's their problem. I'm going to get my lick, and everybody else can figure out their own deal. But, but in this, people who are merciful and step aside intentionally for the preference of others are blessed. Peacemakers are examples of how God behaves. How many of you heard the word be godly? You wonder what godly is? It's just acting in the world the way God would act in the world at any given time. That's the essence of godliness, to try to hear the voice of God based on what we've been taught or based on listening to the Holy Spirit and faithfully doing that. Practicing mercy when it's not warranted. Coming alongside those who mourn and quit, don't say, be a, don't be a wimp. You ought to hear about my struggles, but instead saying that you're, you're really in a hurting place. I'm sorry you're mourning. Let's walk you through this. Let's walk through this together and get, get, you'll never get over it, but you'll get around it and on down the road. And let's do that together. And, and this is the kind of thing that happens, I think, on account of the gospel. Dissolution of meaning is resolved when communities of people come together and live life together and act in public on behalf of, behalf of others. That's kind of our drift a little bit with the green bean, the car show. We just want to be here in Greenwood on behalf of others, creating space for viable community action, being involved in the community of which we live, being known in the community of which we live. And when people gather together and share meals and share life and share activities together, the barriers come down, we develop common understanding, and our, our social cohesion, our spiritual cohesion is deeper and stronger. And by the way, James Davison Hunter says this, the world has had every book writer and every preacher you can possibly understand harangue them about this, that, and the other thing. What this world is hungry for is what the scriptures or what theologians call incarnation. In, in meaning in, carne, flesh, in the flesh. God became human in the person of Jesus Christ and walked among us. He lived, died on the cross, rose again on the third day on our behalf to take us, a ruined civilization, a ruined world, with him back into relationship with God the Father and creator of all things. It's a, it's a simple, complex story. I've been walking it for 47 years. Um, it's a 100-mile it's a journey, and I'm um, 10 steps out the front door. That's pretty good for 47 years. I've been making great progress. And to the violence in our culture, we have got to begin heralding new 
values that reflect the values of Jesus that are soft and merciful, yet they get the job done. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And grace and truth is the answer to violence. And it's just, it's, our culture is so full of angry and aggressive metaphors and conversation right now. People calling any news fake news, and it's just, it's just, I, it's, it's crazy. I think the older you get, the crazier it seems, so I, I've got to write some of that off to my senility, I guess, but I'm still seeing that this is, this is a difficult problem. And violence is rooted in fear and isol- isolation and hopelessness. If people are afraid, you don't know how they're going to behave. I remember I had a little white rat named Ricky when I was in first grade, and we were best friends, but he got sick and was dying, and I was playing with him in the sand at my cousin's house, and he bit into my finger and just creamed me really bad. And then the next morning when I got up to check on him and forgive him for biting me, and I had two little holes in my finger, he was, he was dead in the cage. I felt so terribly bad. But when I reached in the cage, he wasn't feeling well, and he was fearful. And the hand that he would normally allow to pet him or give him a little nibble on something... He turned around and bit out of being cornered and ill. When people are afraid, you're going to see an increase in violence. When people feel isolated and not connected to other people, they don't look at the ramifications of violent behavior and violent conversation. And hopelessness adds to that for some people. They feel like they've never gotten a shot and never will. They're outsiders to the culture. And people who feel that way, again tend to become more violent and act out in that way. What's the prevention to violence? New gun control laws? Maybe so. I don't, I don't think people necessarily need a full Navy Reserve armory in their trunk um, to drive around the city safely. And um, I'm not thinking people really need to pack iron into restaurants and stuff like that to be safe in this city. But gun control legislation alone will not reduce the violence in a culture. It might be a healthy sign that we're working to reduce violence other places. But the reduction of violence comes out of community, understanding, and life-on-life involvement with people. You look at at-risk youth that are violent, go hang out with them. They stop doing bad stuff. Faithful presence by Christians speaks to violence by pursuing others, identifying with others, and offering sacrificial love to other people. And over time that faithful presence of being there in the flesh reduces fear. We came into this neighborhood about 15 years ago, and I would walk into stores, and and I would say, I'm the pastor of the new church that's starting here called Sanctuary in Greenwood at Taproot Theater. And people are, okay, nice to know you. You know, they walk away, just get out of my sight, you know. Those people are now friends. They know us by name. We've been living here for 15 years. They, so there's business people here that call me and ask advice. We, We share common concerns for this community with the, with the business people in this community along with the Green Bean. It's a pretty big deal. In fact, it's a very big deal. We're trying to end flesh. We're trying to flesh out what it is we believe and know to be right. And the Sermon on the Mount holds so much for that. So I have this little practical exercise that I was going to do or, or a challenge. And I just, I don't feel led to, to close that way this morning. The way I want to close is to say, I'm going to talk about this for three weeks. So either disappear for the next three weeks or, or, or come, come hungry. Next week, we're going to look at the Beatitudes, and we're going to read them in a unique way called the Ascendant Reading, 
where one blessedness leads to another in a progression. And that's been part of the spiritual disciplines of the church for years. It's not the primary understanding, but it's a useful tool. And we're going to talk about probably one of these key blessednesses in the third week, and I'll, and I'll get to that. But what I want to invite you all to do is say, is ask the question, as you're, as you're thinking about this today, does this represent a new world order? Is this a better order than the orders that are holding us captive right now? Especially the, the violence of the culture wars we're in. Something's got to stop this. You travel overseas and you say to people, I'm an American, and I go, you know, they will go, they look and say, you guys, all your presidents are the same. You guys have been the same for 200 years. You never changed. The world, you know, my friends, like in El Salvador, when they have an election, you either elect the communist or you elect the dictator. Which one do you want? Communist dictator or fascist dictator? Pick one, roll with it for six, eight years. But here in America, people look at us and say, all your candidates are the same. We can't figure out why you guys fight over stuff that we don't even understand the difference on. America doesn't change, but we feel like it does, and we polarize against each other. How can we as the church burst that bubble of growing bubble of alienation, of violence, of isolation? I think by trying to understand what Jesus is saying here and being sensitive to the spiritual nudges in our lives to lead a life that reflects these values, not the values of cultural preservation that belong to the conservatives or the eradication of all perceived oppression that belongs to the progressives. There's something in the middle and there's something I think higher and that's found here in the words of Jesus. So let's come to him this morning to the table. Let's consecrate ourselves and say, Lord, as I receive this bread and this cup that represent your body and your blood on the cross and your resurrection for us, as we take communion this morning and do that, Lord, I want to ask you to begin to even more appear through my life with the values that we see here in living out the new world order that is the kingdom of God, that is the Beatitudes.